1: And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, resilience, emergency management, and anything that can be relatable to those topics. Uh, Speaking of topics, again, I'd like to remind everyone, if there is something specific you'd like us to talk about, please feel free to reach out um, on the Voice America page uh, for uh, the show. There is a button. Send uh, the host an email or whatever the wording is. And uh, I do get your message. I respond to all emails that come through. Uh, We also have some uh, opportunities for advertising, so let me know, and uh, we can set you up there as well. And I'd like to confirm that we will be at the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference in Phoenix this year, September 29th to August 2nd. I believe we'll be doing a live broadcast on the Monday, which is the uh, 30th. So uh, we've signed uh, everything there. So we'll be back in Phoenix like we were last year and uh, for another great conference. If you've listened to the show um, for any amount of time, you will know that sometimes I'm lucky enough to have return guests because they've got so much more to share with us. And today is no different. We had our guest on the show. His episode uh, aired, I believe it was November 8th, the last year, 2018. And he's back again today with a new book to give us some more insight and some more um, uh, understandings. I'd like to welcome to the show author, John Vespasian, with his book, Undisrupted. John, welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, uh, Alex. Uh, Thanks for having me on.
1: It's uh, my pleasure and uh, congratulations on the new book, Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. Now, if that's not a great topic for this show, I don't know what is.
2: Well, the, the book um, uh, covers uh, different aspects of uh, preparedness, uh, not only for business, not only about business continuity, but also in the, in the areas of uh, health, uh, career, uh, personal finance. So it's, uh, it's a very wide uh, subject and all the stories in the book all the uh, principles they are based on history they are based on real people
1: yeah i remember from our last show actually let before we go that far can you give us a quick uh, update on what you do so our guests know who we're uh, who they're listening to today like uh, your, what you do and you know how how the book came about
2: yeah i write uh, books about uh, personal development this is uh, number 10 and uh, I've been doing this uh, now for um, eleven years, and the books uh, they have uh, a common thread. Uh, They are all based on history. Uh, So what I'm doing, I'm combining my interest uh, in history, uh, business, uh, personal development, uh, personal finance, and I'm producing um, uh, books uh, that draw principles from uh, from stories, from uh, from events, from different centuries, uh, different people, different professions. And uh, what I try to do is to produce books that are very practical, uh, very easy to read, and they deliver um, um, inspiration, they deliver principles that uh, readers can put into practice uh, right away.
1: And and they are quite enjoyable, too. And I I have to admit, I do like the covers. And everybody out there, you'll have to check. Um what I mean on uh, you know book sites to know what I mean by uh, you know enjoying the uh, the look of the covers. They are distinct and uh, you know they're quite uh, uh, quite uh, effective. So John, uh, I've gone for your book, um, another enjoyable read, by the way. And you do talk about a lot of lessons learned from history, and I was wondering um, why people become so vulnerable. and you talk about a gentleman by the name of Vladimir Kovalevsky. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, Kovalevsky um, uh, was a, a lawyer, and at the same time, he was a paleontologist because he changed professions when he was in his, uh, in his 20s, and he plays an important role in the book because he discovered the, the main principle uh, for dealing with uh, disruptions. Uh, uh earned a living as a translator while he was studying, he was studying law in uh, Petersburg, St. Petersburg in Russia. He was Russian. Uh, he was earning a living by translating books. He taught himself uh, how to read uh, German and English. Uh, he translated uh, all the books by Charles Darwin into Russian, the books about uh, the theory of evolution. Uh, and While he was doing that, just to, uh, to earn a living, to pay for his uh, law studies, he became super uh, fascinated by the theory of evolution. He actually went to, uh, to London just to meet uh, Darwin, and little by little, he decided uh, to change professions. Uh, so eventually he um, he left for Germany and he got a PhD in geology uh, because he wanted to become a, a teacher. He wanted to um, to find uh, evidence in history about uh, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. He wanted actually to provide the final proof. And Kowalewski, um, uh, when he did his uh, PhD work, uh, he tried to solve uh, a puzzle, a mystery, that uh, nobody in the 19th century uh, had been able to solve. And it's the following. If you go to any museum uh, in the US or even Australia, uh, and also in some parts of Asia, uh, you find uh, fossils, you find uh, remains of uh, very small horses, uh, the size of a cat. And um, uh, until Kowalevsky. Uh, the whole science community believed that uh, these small horses could not be related uh, to today's horses because the size is very different. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, the skeleton is a bit different. And Kovalesky was uh, researching the whole thing, trying to find an explanation. And eventually, he, he um, produced an explanation that today we know it's true. But then he, he found this principle of disruption. And it's very interesting, the story, because it gives you the whole uh, setup for the book, um, Kowalewski was trying to figure out how these small horses, uh, basically living in the U.S. in America, uh, became what uh, today we see as very large, very very strong, very rapid uh, animals. And he came up with the theory that uh, the small horses uh, evolved into very powerful, very uh, very fast, very um, strong animals thanks to these And let's see how they did it. Uh, the small horses. Uh, this was the theory of Kowleski. they were uh, living in the woods, they were eating uh, blades, Uh, they were uh, roaming within the the woods because it was very dangerous uh, to go outside because of the predators. But eventually, uh, thanks to or due to a climatic change, climate change, uh, the trees started to grow and the horses, they have to go outside if they wanted to find food, so they they have to go on the prairie. And they, they got chased by predators, by big uh, cats, and they have to run. They have to run for their lives. So little by little, generation after generation, the horses that uh, survived, they were the strongest. They were the tallest, the little by little. And also they were uh, a bit faster than the others. And after a few generations, they grew a few millimeters, and they continued to grow. Because they, the horses that uh, survived, um, they were those that had more children. Uh, the highest uh, number of children, and eventually they reproduce, and they started to grow through thousands of years. And the principle that uh, Kowaleski drew from the story, which actually today know it is true, is the right explanation, is that uh, people actually survive uh, disruptions like these horses when they rely on their, uh, on their assets, on skills that uh, they have already. Uh, The horses uh, didn't start to fly or didn't start to do something weird. They just rely on their basic skills. They started to run a little faster. They started to grow a little stronger. But basically, they are the same horses. And you compare these uh, fossils from thousands of years ago with today's horses, and they they look very similar. It's just that uh, by relying on their basic skills, on their basic assets, they became stronger. And this principle that Kowalewski uh, discovered uh, while trying to uh, demonstrate uh, the theories of Darwin is the same principle. Uh, you will go through the book and you will see uh, stories in all areas of life, in business, uh, in um, in uh, people recovering their health. You go through all areas of society and you always see the same principle. People who go uh, through disruptions and who do very well and they go out uh, to the other side and they actually become even better. These are people who actually rely on their skills they already they already have, they rely on, on assets, they rely on relationships they already have. They do not improvise. And one of the uh, principles in the book is that people who actually go, go under, people who actually um, uh, die or they are completely destroyed um, due to the disruptions, these are people who try to improvise. The worst possible strategy when you're trying to, uh, to face uh, uh, some kind of disruption or to try to deal with any kind of problems, the worst possible strategy is improvisation. Uh, if you start to do something you've never done, you go into areas uh, you've never been, you try to, um, to um, uh, reinvent the wheel, so to speak, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. And the book uh, gives you a lot of stories, a lot of examples from real people who, being very clever and very, very, very brilliant, they started to improvise and they destroyed their life completely.
1: Well, you, you kind of uh, hit a nail on the head there when it comes to a lot of the crisis managers out there right now. They, they, you know, you see them in the news and they tend to make up things that are happening, you know, and if they don't agree with what is actually happening, they're calling it fake news and all kinds of other things. So it's interesting that, you know, how you described, um, you know, from horses, how they were able to learn a- and grow. And yet, sometimes we still see our own kind people not doing that.
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, this is because we have this ingrained uh, uh, tendency um, to look for novelties. And uh, this is why people spend so much time, I think, on social media or uh, watching videos on YouTube, because we like to be um, uh, all the time. We we like to be uh, entertained. uh, We like to uh, explore new ideas. But if you're running a business or you want to have uh, a relatively uh, smooth uh, life, uh, this is not a good approach. Um, You want to go um for areas you want to concentrate on areas where you have already some skills and expertise uh, and if you want to learn and if you want to evolve you want to grow your business uh you want to do it uh, little by little carefully uh without getting into uh, travel waters
1: and i guess if you you know if you don't have the skills let's say i don't have a particular skill uh my skill really should know where i lapse.
2: well yes um uh, one of the uh, principles uh, that comes back in, in many chapters of the book is that uh, you should know what you know, uh, you should know what you don't know, uh, so that uh, you can stay uh, away from the, from the latter, and you can concentrate on what you know, but it's very difficult, and we will go later through some stories. And I I will show you that uh, people who look uh, extremely successful and they have made a fortune, they have um, uh, accumulated uh, a lot of uh, relationships, a lot of uh, customers in some area, they can go into another business and within a few years uh, destroy uh, their assets, destroy their lives uh, completely.
1: And then that of others too, right?
2: Yeah, okay. Unfortunately, the same, very often uh, they bring down also their family and their friends uh, because they trust them and they believe that uh, since this guy has been able to build such a huge business, he should be able to do anything. But this is, uh, this is a mirage. This is a fantasy. Um, we all have limitations. We all have areas of ignorance. Uh, and it is very important that uh, we respect uh, those.
1: That's right. And I know you want to, uh, we have some great stories uh, to to come about that. So I'm going to uh, end this segment uh, a couple of minutes early um, so that we can uh, address those in our next segment. We're talking today with author and expert John Vespasian and his book, Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. We'll be right back.
0: the internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com. attention if you're a parent educator social worker or civic or religious leader the most important program you'll hear this week is exploited crimes against humanity host opal singleton and her guest Show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific time, 10 a.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild in Your Dog. With expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone road.com. Again, that's info at stone road.com. Now back to preparing for the unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with John Vespasian and his book. Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal With Disruptions. John, in our first segment, uh, you mentioned that we'd be talking, with, uh, talking about some uh, interesting stories and examples um, that you have in your book. So um, let's start with one. You talk about Henry Louis um, uh, Men- Mencken, I'm hope, hoping I'm saying that right, and how to deal with disruptions. Can you go through that example for us?
2: Yeah, Mencken was a journalist, uh, a very um, famous journalist in the 1950s, in in the US 1950s, beginning of the 60s. Uh, What made him uh, distinct as a writer is that uh, when he um, uh, presented a problem, he always proposed a solution. Uh, which is very unusual because today when you read the newspapers and you listen to the radio, or television, it's all catastrophes. Uh, People tell you, oh, this is horrible. Uh, The world is falling apart. Uh, There is no uh, solution. Uh, You just have to hide under your table, under your desk, and um, (laughs) there is no, uh, there's no salvation. And this is very annoying uh, because people get uh, depressed. They get uh, passive. Uh, Mencken was a, a unique personality. He was very well read in history, Uh, He spoke several languages, and he was a great commentator of uh, American politics. But uh, what really, uh, what I I really taken from his uh, from his work is that um, you have to look into history. You have to look for examples, and this is something that Mencken underlined uh, very often in his writings. Uh, When you have a problem, or you're facing a disruption. Uh, it's, a, it's a waste of time to, to go into uh, wailing and, and lamentations and uh, complaining. This is a complete waste of time. You will not solve the problem. You have to find uh, examples in history, and Mencken was very good at that. He could go back to the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans to find examples that perfectly fit the problem, and he always came with a solution. Right, let me just give you one of the uh, examples from the book. One of the, um, one of the stories I, I, I tell in the book is about the construction of cathedrals, which uh, you might have read, you have read uh, a few weeks ago that uh, Notre Dame, the great uh, cathedral in Paris, mm-hmm. actually burned down, or part of it burned down uh, due to an accident, apparently. Well, mm-hmm. this was constructed um, in the 12th century, 13th century, these cathedrals in Europe. And the example is very interesting uh, because uh, it shows... How uh, people were able to build uh, amazing, um, uh, very large uh, constructions uh, with very low technology, very low level of technology. There was no electricity, uh, very little uh, of um, of mathematical knowledge. Um, The redistractions were huge uh, because uh, there was very long winters. It was very cold. Transportation was very difficult and very expensive. People spoke different languages. They could not even... Understand each other. Uh, when they hired uh, people to build the cathedral, actually in um, in Saint Denis, uh, they had uh, people from uh, seven different uh, uh, linguistic areas. They could not read. To make it even more interesting, they could not even communicate in writing. So it was a complete mess. But still, uh, they managed to build the cathedrals. And I found the um, the principles that they used uh, to build the cathedrals. They are super interesting. Uh, for what concerns uh, business continuity, uh, dealing with disruptions, because you can apply these principles in the 21st century, of course, with better technology, but the principles are the same. And it gives you very, very interesting ideas. The person who actually discovered uh, how to put the whole thing together and to build cathedrals, uh, what someone called Sujet. Uh, sujet was an abbot uh, in a monastery in, uh, very close to Paris in Saint-Denis, and uh, he was the person behind the first uh, uh, gothic uh, cathedral in europe and the technology actually existed already uh, because people uh, in the early um, uh, 10th century they already had uh, uh, very good ideas about uh, how to make uh, uh, higher buildings uh, how to sustain Uh, weights, by using uh, different pillars. But actually, nobody had been able to put it together because the disruptions, the obstacles uh, were just too big. Uh, To give you an idea, this sujet, he was uh, uh, the abbot of a monastery. He was in his 40s when he actually started uh, the whole project. And they had already a church in this uh, monastery, but uh, it was falling apart. It was very old. It was from the uh, 6th century. And they wanted to rebuild it. And Suji, um, uh, he was a very, very um, uh, curious man. He was traveling around France for several years. He tried to, uh, to gather uh, knowledge how to, to repair the cathedral. And for the first time in history, he came up with, uh, with a system of work that uh, enabled uh, people to work despite disruptions. To give you an idea. Uh, In this um, context, uh, one of the main problems um, uh, of disruptions, in the we're now in the 12th century, one of the main problems is that uh, there was no stability. It's like you have a company or you have a business and it only works in the summer because people come to your hotel in the summer, but uh, then you have to close for the winter and it's a mess because you have to to fire the employees, uh, you have to actually close the installations. So it's very, very disruptive. And this is what happened uh, in the 12th century because uh, the winter was so cold that uh, Sougier could hire about 100 people uh, to build the cathedral, but only for a few months, only between, um, basically between uh, April and September, because then the temperatures were very, very cold and they have no infrastructure. And he was thinking and thinking about it, say, what can I do? How can I solve the problem? Because if he did it like uh, everybody else, it would take him uh, 20 years Uh, At least to build the cathedral, it was impossible to sustain uh, the expertise because people would go, the employees uh, would disappear, and they would have to start from scratch. It was a mess. So Sujie, for the first time in history, he came up with an idea to sustain uh, business continuity uh, for for the time he needed to build the cathedral. So he was the following. Instead of trying to start uh, building right away, he prepared a plan for continuity and say, how can I use the manpower? How can I use the resources all through the year without disruptions? And in the end, he came up with a solution, which I, I present in great detail in the book. He built uh, uh, houses. He built uh, wooden houses for uh, the workers. This is the first thing he did. Instead of building the cathedral, he built the houses for the workers so that uh, they could stay there the whole, the whole year. So during the winter, uh, they were able to uh, spend their time uh, cutting stones to the right size, which was 50% of the work. And during the summer, they would get the stones and then build the walls. So actually he cut uh, the production time uh, by half and he was able to maintain the manpower employed through the year. And this is a great principle this is one of the principles of uh, business continuity you have to find a way that even if you have to deal with disruptions in this case the weather or the seasons even you have to give to give to deal with disruptions you can still uh, continue to work doing something else and sujet uh, did it all the way he found a way how to uh, communicate with people who could not read uh, he found a way um, to uh, to make sure that all the stones in the cathedral have the same size. So he standardized. He reduced risk. He eliminated the disruptions, and in the end, he was able to put up the cathedral in a record time. And he did it in uh, ten years. Uh, it could have taken uh, thirty years, but he did it very quickly because basically he reduced disruptions to zero.
1: Interesting. That's an interesting example of you know con- business continuity. How do you keep it going? You know when you've experienced uh, adversity and everything comes to a dead halt because of the snow. <laughs> very interesting.
2: Yeah, when you go in, when when yeah, uh, Alex, when you go into history and look at uh, successful people, um, you find uh, many examples of uh, of uh, very clever entrepreneurship. Uh, They were not necessarily the most uh, technically knowledgeable because, for instance, Sujet himself, he was not an architect, but he was a very good manager. And the same goes uh, in other areas. For instance, uh, another uh, story I analyze in the book is the story of Rubens. He was a a very wealthy uh, painter, a very wealthy artist in the 17th century. And again, uh, he was not, uh, I would say, the most gifted uh, painter of his generation. I think there were... There were other painters of the, in the 17th century, much, much better than Rubens, but he was the wealthiest and the most successful uh, because he built a perfect machine for making money without disruptions. Uh, uh, when he was in his 20s, uh, and Rubens, uh, he wanted to become a painter, but he was conscious that uh, most painters in the area, and we are talking now about uh, Belgium, about Antwerp, uh, most painters were very poor. Uh, They were close to starvation or they had other jobs and they only painted uh, as a hobby. And Rubens actually wanted to make a fortune. Uh, He looked around, he could not find any good examples. Uh, There were some painters um, like uh, Vermeer, a very famous painter in in the Netherlands, who was uh, brilliant, much, much better than Rubens, but he was not making any money. Uh, He was uh, selling a few paintings per year, but he was basically uh, doing that as a hobby. But Rubens wanted uh, to become successful. He wanted to get rid of the risk. So how did he do it? Uh, A very clever strategy that I recommend if you want to run a business successfully with few disruptions, uh, Rubens simply imitated uh, other painters that were successful. So since he couldn't find any in, uh, in Belgium or the Netherlands, uh, he just went to Italy. He spent uh, s- six months in Italy uh, looking at painters that really made a lot of money. Uh, he looked at uh, uh, people painting in, um, in Florence, in Venice, in Rome. He looked at their techniques. He looked at their marketing uh, techniques because uh, in, um, in, in Brussels, in uh, Antwerp. Uh, It was still very much uh, uh, depending on connections, but in Italy, they really have a marketing machine. They have a very large um, industry for producing uh, works of art. So Rubens basically uh, look around, he copied the techniques. He looked at how people actually develop the concepts for new paintings, how they actually sold them. Uh, he looked at different uh, business models. He looked at uh, people who were selling portraits, who were selling um, uh, murals. And then he went back to uh, Anverb and he basically imitated uh, what he had seen in Italy. And he did it very successfully. For instance, he was one of the few persons in Europe to realize that uh, the market for paintings, for portraits, for family portraits, which was a huge market, was completely different for the, from the market uh, for uh, murals. Because the, the the market segmentation that they were using in Italy was unknown in Northern Europe, so he just came back. Uh, he copied uh, the same methodology they were using in in uh, Italy for selling uh, portraits. He just got the sketchbook, and he went to all kind of parties. He, Rubens was going to parties continuously with his sketchbook, uh, trying to show people how he could make uh, paintings, and he sold uh, a huge amount of portraits that very often he didn't produce himself, he had uh, apprentices to produce those paintings. And the same, uh, he created also a very uh, solid uh, marketing system uh, to sell uh, mural paintings for uh, churches and cathedrals in uh, in Europe. And within a few years, uh, he built a tremendous fortune. Uh, you can still go to uh, to Anwerp in, um, in, uh, in uh, Belgium and you can visit uh, Rubens House, it's still there, It's a very pretty uh, Renaissance building, and you can see that uh, for his time, he was extremely wealthy. But Rubens uh, was a genius in uh, business continuity. I mean, he could use every minute of the day uh, productively. He would not be uh, interrupted by anything. Even when he was um, uh, painting, he was uh, uh, supervising his apprenticeships, the guy found a way Uh, to use the time productively because he didn't want to lose money. He had no time for reading, for instance, uh, something that uh, is very uh, disruptive for uh, artists because they cannot find new ideas. So today in the 21st century, maybe you listen to a podcast uh, to get new ideas, to get new knowledge. But in the 17th century, Rubens was doing the same because he was hiring people, hiring students uh, to read books uh, out uh, to him. So in the end, he built a machinery, he built a business that was undistractable. Uh, He was uh, still working until his uh, 60s, he he lived uh, 63 years. He basically was the only artist in Europe who managed to make money in good times, in bad times, during the war, during peacetime, he made money every year because he built a machinery, he built a business that was undistractable.
1: Hmm, Interesting. Now, you have an interesting example I really want to make sure we touch on. And when I read it, I, I think of uh, crisis um, management and some of the social media responses that are out there. And it's to do with you know, false narratives and the Knights Templar. Can you yeah, talk about Templar. that?
2: Yeah, the Knights Templar. Um, I think uh, most people have uh, seen uh, movies uh, from the Middle Ages. It was a very... A um, uh, uh, strong uh, military order. Uh, they had uh, castles. They had uh, land all around Europe. It was about twenty thousand people. Uh, twenty thousand people made uh, most of them from rich families. So it was a very uh, powerful uh, order. It's like, it was like a multinational company. Uh, you see nowadays like uh, IBM or something like this. And they. Um, they had uh, very much uh, under control all the international finance in Europe uh, because they created uh, a system for payments, for compensating, uh, for clearing checks that is very similar to the SWIFT uh, system we have now in the 21st century. But hmm. anyway, the, the story of the Templars is that uh, they created this huge organization, this multinational company, but uh, then they collapsed uh, within literally they collapsed within one year. And the, the story is very intriguing. And then you go into this uh, social media and you see all these conspiracy theories. That, uh, but in the end, the story is very simple. Uh, they collapsed because they didn't have any, um, any plan uh, for dealing with disruptions. They, they have a conflict uh, with the King of France. And the King of France, uh, they wanted to uh, basically blackmail them and to get some money from them because it had so much money. And he arrested uh, six people. Six people out of uh, 20,000, he arrested, uh, so say, the board of directors. uh, The leader of the Templars, his name was uh, Jacques de Molay. And he arrested the six people. He prosecuted them under false charges. Eventually, um, he executed uh, this uh, small team. And what happened to the other 20,000? Well, they collapsed and they disbanded because they had absolutely no possibility uh, to deal with any disruptions. The structure of the Knights Templar was so rigid and was so centralized that uh, they were unable to deal with any disruptions. So in the end, uh, the other 20,000 people who could actually, they could have successfully uh, taken over uh, France because the, the, the army was huge. They didn't have any plan to deal with disruptions. So they collapsed and they disappeared uh, in less than a year.
1: Incredible. That's something that strong you know, and that big can collapse that quick. I guess uh, really in today's world, the same thing can happen if you're not leading properly and you don't have the proper plans in place, just like we hear you know, 30% or 50% of businesses that go through a disaster, within two years, they're gone.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, and you see also this very often in uh, in hedge funds, uh, where you see these people who make uh, millions and millions one year, and then the next year they go bankrupt uh, because they don't have a, a system for uh, risk control.
1: Yeah, big, yeah, uh, not not being able to manage the risk. And I guess, uh, what's the topic they you call um, succession planning too? You haven't designated who's in charge and backups and things like that, you know, when that, the head of the organization or the spokesperson isn't available.
2: Yeah, in the case of the Knights Templar, it was very tragic uh, because they spent two centuries uh, to build a very um, powerful, very um, well-fashioned organization. But uh, just because they didn't have the right structure in place, uh, they disappeared completely. And, and uh, you can still visit uh, some of the castles from the Knights Templars in Europe, but uh, mm-hmm. there's nothing left there.
1: No, you know, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories, but you're, you're right, there isn't, you know, there's nothing there anymore. So, well, on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking today with John Vespasian and his book, Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. We'll be right back.
0: stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts VoiceAmerica.com.
1: accidents injuries hazards of all kinds it seems like everything you do has something dangerous attached to it everyday safety is important to us all yet where can you get the information you need to prevent injuries and accidents tune in for todd murray and his program safety is your first choice from safety in the home to the car in your workplace, as well as anywhere that you need to be prepared. He'll cover a range of topics. Tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety.
0: All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's info at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. We are talking with John Vespasian um, and his book, Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. John, you've given us some incredible examples from history on, on things. And like I said during the break, I just, you know, don't know how you come up with some of this stuff. But it's really interesting and I, I really enjoy listening to you. Which leads me to the next point. Um, relating today's over uh, overconfidence that nothing will happen. You give an example uh, the story, and I'm probably going to say the name wrong, Sava uh, Mamontov. Can you talk about uh, that example?
2: Uh, yes, Mamontov, uh, he was a Russian industrialist. He was the Russian equivalent of uh, Andrew Carnegie in the U.S. He was building railroads uh, very successfully in the 19th century before the revolution, before the uh, Russian revolution. Uh, he was a celebrity. He was on the front page of the newspaper Every week he had a house in uh, central Moscow, he had a a country home in the south of Russia, he has a huge art collection, so he was like uh, a big celebrity and um, when he was in his uh, mid-40s, he wanted to expand his business. Uh, He was uh, running these railroads, he was listed in the stock market, uh, he got the idea, and this is something that you see very often when you see the, um, the newspapers today, that uh, you have someone who is doing something very well and say, oh, maybe I could expand, I could expand and do something else. So, Mamontov got the idea of um, starting to produce steel. He wanted, uh, and it was sort of logical, because if he was running a railroad, why not uh, produce steel uh, for the rails and for making locomotives? So, he found it very logical. Uh, he thought, okay, if I can run a, a railroad, uh, I should be able to produce steel, which is uh, super simple. I mean, this is what he thought. And uh, he, um, he started a uh, steel mill. Uh, within a year, he was losing a huge amount of money. It was much more complicated uh, than he thought. Um, and then um, he made the archetypical mistake of uh, of people who are very successful, Instead of saying, okay, I made a mistake, I stopped here, so I just let it go, he could have let uh, the steel uh, mill, he could have let it go bankrupt because it was a separate company, but he did what clever people always do, Uh, they refuse to acknowledge mistakes, and they say, no, 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 I cannot possibly fail. Uh, He started to take money from the railroad uh, to pay for the losses in the steel manufacturing, he mm-hmm. did it uh, for a couple of years, and then his shareholders, the shareholders of the railroad, they uh, they learned about it. They were very upset because basically he was uh, taking their money to pay for the steel manufacturing. They sued him. Uh, he was prosecuted for embezzlement, and in the end, um, uh, it was a very famous trial. It was for a, for one year. It was on the on the cover page on the front page of the newspapers. And eventually Mamontov, um, he didn't go to jail because he actually he didn't steal the money for himself. He was just trying to keep his company alive. But eventually they took away from him everything. They took away the companies, the art collection, the houses. He lost everything. And for the last uh, 13 years of his life, uh, he lived in total poverty, total misery. Uh, his former friends would not talk to him. He was completely isolated, uh, and he wrote um, uh, some letters. And we know that he was very uh, repentant of what he did. But eventually, um, he never learned the lesson. He he never said, "I should have not uh, gone into areas I knew nothing about. I should have not mm-hmm. improvised. Improvisation is the killer." It is what mm-hmm. uh, makes uh, movie stars uh, lose their uh, savings in the stupid investments. This is what makes uh, a sto- a sports um, uh, very successful sportsmen to lose all their savings uh, because they are swindled in some real estate uh, deal. Improvisation is something you have to get away. You have to really um, uh, have a plan. Uh, to protect your risk. If you start to improvise like um, a amount of deeds, um, you will destroy your business and possibly everything else.
1: It, it's, it's interesting that that story, because it reminds me of some of the um, disasters that or crises that happen with organizations where they, you know, try to make the story up as they go and get a message out because they're hiding something and just plain and simple, don't admit, Hey, we made a mistake. And then you find that if if they did admit they made a mistake, that, other organizations or the public or the media are more willing to um, help you a- and, you know, not um, berate you for making that mistake. You know, they, they're more supportive of you because you admitted you made a mistake.
2: Yeah, but it's uh, psychological. is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go through some of the other stories in the book, uh, you see people actually, they prefer... Uh, To lose money, they prefer to actually to destroy their uh, uh, marriage, their relationships, uh, their career. They prefer to do that rather than uh, acknowledge they made a mistake. And it's it's very human. Uh, There is a a, a strong psychological justification, but it's the wrong thing to do. And there is a a, a, um, a strategy that I present in the book to avoid this kind of uh, problems. And this was um, employed... By uh, George Stephenson, he was um, um, he was uh, a, an industrialist in Britain in the 18th century. With his together with his son uh, Robert Stephenson, they created um, uh, different uh, railroads companies. They created different businesses, and they came up with a perfect system uh, to reduce disruption and to reduce risk. They learned uh, by making mistakes because Robert Stephenson, for instance, he was almost bankrupt. Uh, uh, for a few years, because he made a huge mistake in uh, one of his investments, but he learned the lesson, and then uh, he came out with uh, with a system for uh, risk diversification that uh, today I think all good uh, business, all good companies, they use it. Uh, what Stevenson did when he created a new business, because his business basically he was a financier. Uh, he was not so much uh, a technology. He didn't. He was not an engineer. What he was doing was basically. Uh, to put together uh, venture capital deals uh, to link uh, cities by railroad. And uh, He would mm-hmm. prepare a, a business plan, he prepared a procurement plan, and then he got uh, money from the, from the banks. Uh, he was doing very, 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 very well. But uh, Stevenson came up with a principle that uh, when you are doing this kind of things, when you're having a business uh, and you are expanding uh, very quickly into different markets, uh, you are really um, issuing uh, bonds uh, to raise capital. Uh, you have to deal with a lot of contracts uh, for uh, procurement, for locomotives. Uh, you have to split the risk. And Stephenson, mm-hmm. uh, after, after going bankrupt uh, uh, once, for the rest of his life, he always separated the risk. He created uh, a different company, a different uh, liability, limited liability company for each business. Even if he was very small, even if he he was just buying uh, a a track of railroad for 40 kilometers, he always created a different company because he knew that uh, he could overlook something, he could make a mistake. uh, He was ready, very unusual, he was ready to acknowledge a mistake and to let it go. And actually, Stephenson, uh, he made a few failures, he had a few uh, bankruptcies, but it didn't matter because it was just one company out of the total. So on several occasions when he thought uh, he made a mistake, he acknowledged the mistake and said, I'm very sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, We stopped this business and we continue with the rest. And this is something that uh, we have to learn from history. If you really want to run a complex uh, business or a complex uh, organization or a complex whatever, uh, you have to be able to break down uh, the risk in small pieces so that you can always uh, let go of a, of a rotten apple, you can always let go of some problem and then concentrate on the rest. And Stephenson, for the rest of his life, he used this strategy of diversification and segmentation uh, religiously. Uh, he, he lived um, uh, until his, uh, he was 56 when he died, and when he died, he had a lot of different companies with a lot of different names. And he accumulated a large fortune because he knew when to fold the cards when it was not possible to continue.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because risk management is one of the keys you know, to understanding good programs and developing good programs. You know.
2: Yeah, but it's, uh, you need a lot of self-discipline. And uh, Stephenson, uh, he actually... Uh, got to this uh, uh, point of view. He started to do it only when he had no choice, because when he uh, did one of his first projects, uh, he created um, a, a partnership. Uh, he was not very very knowledgeable in legal matters, so created a partnership, and it went south because they started to lose money, and eventually he found himself uh, liable for all the debts of the company, and he was in, and it was impossible. I mean, he could not pay. Uh, the whole uh, the debts even if he worked for 200 years so eventually Mm -hmm. after two years of uh, agony uh, he made a deal with the with the debtors uh, with the creditors and eventually uh, they they closed the company and they started a new one Uh, he was relieved to do that because uh, he learned the lesson and for the rest of his life he was very very self-disciplined he always broke down the risk in little pieces and he was always ready uh, to let go when it was obviously uh, a losing situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I know we only have about five minutes left. Would you like to uh, give us some closing comments? Because I know uh, in our little agenda here, you had an interesting comment. Stay away from unrealistic ideals, such as problems with, will somehow solve themselves. I thought that was interesting. Can you explain that in our last couple of minutes?
2: Yes, um, uh, when you have uh, a major problem, uh, whether it's in business or your health, uh, the first reaction is denial. Uh, we tend to say, "Okay, uh, it is not happening. I am not feeling sick. Uh, everything is going to be fine." Uh, I lost uh, a major customer, a major client, but uh, he will back. He will come back. He will come back, and we have this uh, with and with this attitude of uh, denial. And then after that, uh, usually people will panic and they become very depressed because they realize that uh, they have lost something important or they have uh, severe uh, health problems and it's going to be very difficult to recover. So the message of the book is that you should not go into any of these directions. There is no reason to, um, to uh, become depressed if you follow the right strategy. And it is also a very a very bad uh, policy to deny the existence of problems. What you have to do in each situation is to go and find examples of people who have solved similar problems. And you will always find them in, in history. One of the stories I tell in the book is about um, uh, a guitar player, uh, Django Reinhardt, who actually lost a finger in an accident he was uh, living in uh, he was a gypsy and he got uh, burned when his wagon burned during the night because he was uh, uh, not having he didn't have electricity so there was uh, an accident and he lost a finger and he was very depressed at the beginning but eventually he found a way to solve the problem but changing the way he played guitar uh, it was a long story but eventually he uh, he imitated uh, something he had seen in the past he learned to play Uh, 25 percent faster uh, with his left hand and eventually he came out with a very successful style and he made a fortune. But uh, the the principle is the same. When you have these kind of disruptions, these kind of uh, accidents, instead of getting depressed, instead of denying the problem, you have to try to find uh, examples of people, of companies who have solved similar problems. And I'm Mm 100%, 99.9% sure you will find something similar, like in the case of uh, Django Reinhardt, he found uh, examples in history of people who've been uh, building uh, musical instruments to fit uh, their uh, physical problems and doing very well. So eventually he thought, maybe I could do the same with the guitar, and he did, and he became a very uh, famous and very um, successful musician.
1: And on that note, we've come to the end of our third segment. John, thanks very much for uh, joining us and giving us some great uh, food for thought, some really interesting points here. And congratulations once again on your book, Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal With Disruptions. I really hope everyone uh, checks out John's books. They're full of uh, very interesting facts and a lot of stuff we could uh, learn from. So thanks again for joining us, John.
2: Many thanks, uh, Alex.
1: Okay, and to everybody out there, stay prepared, everybody.